Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out. Anyway, let's dive into this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Vin and Ali show. On this episode, we are reviewing the book titled The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. Hey Ali, thanks for yeah, this is, thanks for <laughs> thanks for always being here because I guess it's the Vin and Ali show. Why do Why do yeah, I thank you? Why yeah, no, I, well, thank I, you I I just really appreciate the love and the uh, appreciation for me being here. I also appreciate you being here, so it's great. It it, it really would be different if it you was know, the Vin and Ali show without Vin and Ali. So, well, do you, know, do you know the thing is, maybe secretly inside, I just think you're not a part of this show. Really, it's the Vin show, and I, that's why I always yeah, yeah, thank you because it's it's really just yeah. The you're Vin like, oh show. my god, it's like there's somebody there's somebody else here, like oh, talking yeah. while I'm talking. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh well, gosh, this makes sense. Hey, that aligns before very strongly. We, before we dive into this book by Morgan Housel, right? Tell, tell me, what are your initial thoughts when you read this book? Do you have any kind of initial thoughts as you read it? Um. Ooh, the psychology of money. I think my initial thought was, I, mean, I read this book the first time, I think maybe three years ago, um, just as an audible. And it was one of those books that I think I just sort of went through relatively quickly. But then when I look back, I actually had a couple of notes from it. Now, money books and finance books aren't really at the top of my list compared to probably other categories. But mm. I think that there is a very big interest in terms of just how people do think about money, right? And then the different ways that money makes us act and how we go through that. So a lot of the times when you read finance types of books, they're very tactical, right? It's like mm. invest this amount into this fund, like get this, like I always think about the best barefoot investor, for example. Awesome book, like gives you step-by-step tips, generally always recommended to anyone who's like got financial or looking to improve their financial sort of education. Whereas this book's really interesting in the fact that it looks a little bit more high level in terms of, okay, well, when we are making behavioral kind of changes or when we have behaviors related to money, what, what is the actual thing driving that and how do you understand that a little bit more, which is, I think was pretty cool. Um, like the book references uh, Daniel Kahneman a lot from Thinking Fast and Slow, which is pretty cool too. Yeah. So that's sort of thinking around, all right, well, What's sort of like the the underlying psychology and the way that our brains sort of work, and how does that then relate to yeah money? So that was really interesting. What about you? I I think I I, I gravitate towards the books that are more tactical, and this is the first time I've read a, a a book on the psychology of money. Whereas the other ones, like you said, the barefoot investor, it was you know pay off your bad debt first, whatever you can to yeah. pay off that credit card first, and then you go to the next thing, and then and it, it was. It felt much needed, Yeah, this book for me. It's funny. The last two books we've done really have felt like medicine for me. It's like yeah. me eating broccoli at the dinner table. I'm just like, ah, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, eating. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't taste that good, but damn, I, I feel nourished from it. Yeah. Because I think that while I've learned how to make money in my life, I've never learned how to think about money. Mm-hmm. I've never really thought, thought about how to approach it and 
and and and I love that it gives you just such a great foundation in the way you should mm-hmm. think about money. So so for me, it just felt very foundational. It felt very nourishing from that standpoint. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Well, all right, Lord, let's let's, uh, let's dive into this one. Let's jump into let's this. Start. All right. What's what's something that you took away? What's something that you really liked? The first one that you right. kind of highlighted. I've highlighted, right, I highlighted so, so much reading this. Cool. So one of the ones was, I just really like this is, um, it, it was one of the first points probably that I came across in the book and it just says no one's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it, it goes into saying that like your personal experiences with money make up maybe like 0.001% of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you think the world works. And I thought that was a really interesting concept, right? Because so many times when you speak to people, like money is is a big part of our lives, but and it ta- again it can take up a very large portion of our mind space. But when you actually then maybe break it down, like how much of it practically does it really impact, right? So I thought that was just an interesting topic to jam on, and I think that'll vary for for different people and depending on how and what your relationship is with money. But yeah, I thought that was just quite an interesting thing that. I'm just trying to think about when you said that it takes up a lot of your mind, but it doesn't yeah. impact you as much. What do you What do you mean by that? Well, when I go back to this, is like it's is it nearly disproportionate how much we value the impact of money in our lives, or or is it legitimate? Well, I, I, I definitely can say that I feel the majority of us, me included, we, we feel that money is the key thing that helps us solve all of our sorrows, right? Mm. Especially in, in general, I think a lot of the times that's the easiest assumption to make. The yep. easiest assumption to make is that, yep, when I have more money, things will be, be better. Yeah. If I get this, then this will happen. Yeah, once right. I get that pay rise, once I get mm-hmm. that next gig, whatever it may be for you, then I'm going to feel better, I'll feel more free, I'm going to feel more abundant, et cetera. And yeah. it, it's, it's interesting talking about that and having read The Power of Now being our last podcast episode, which is a great yeah. one, by the way. If you haven't read the book, check it out or check out our, our previous episode. But what's interesting about The Power of Now is that it's, it helps us realize that oh, it's, it's almost hard to... I'm, I'm trying to, again, I just want to quickly iterate here as well is that Ali and I are not financial advisors. So please don't listen to any of the, <laughs> the things that we say here. It's just, I, I have to do that disclaimer because I always yeah. hear it on every YouTube video I watch. Yeah. I, I, I have to say it too. <laughs> this is for entertainment purposes only. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now that, that's out of the way. It's now I lost my trailer. thought, what, what was I just saying, Ali? I have no idea. <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> I got two. I remember the disclaimer. That was the last thing that happened. And Power of Now, like you were talking sort of around the contrast between the two books. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's, it's the fact that I'm trying to clasp onto that thought, but it will come to me. Well, you, you well going on. back to this is like, I think what the book then goes in on is that, like, say, for example, we're also very conditioned to our experiences and conditioning that we have with money. Right, like, say, I think he then talks about an example of, like, say, for example, if you grew up during the Great Depression, 
right? You're going to have a different viewpoint and like that may be disproportionate nature of how much money takes up your mind and the way that you approach it is going to be very different to maybe the potential reality of what's actually happening, right? Like to say somebody that was maybe that lived through the thirties and the forties, they might have a much more of a survival um, or like, uh, I need to save. I need to have really good security. I don't want to take many risks with money, right? And even in times of when that isn't really a factor, right? When there, there isn't a big threat of another depression or whatever, and the, the cycle of society is a little bit different, they still might still be holding those values of it's time to bunker down. It's time to, you know, really lock in here just because of what they experienced. Right. So it might even be that depending on what generation that you grew up in, that relationship to money is also going to be pretty different. Right. Like I think about our kids and how they're growing up, say, call it living in Australia where the safety net is very strong. You get healthcare looked after, you have great welfare, you've got all these other bits and pieces. So I wonder what their relationship with money is going to be and how they'll value it what types of decisions will will they make like i think it's going to be a lot more difficult to try to teach a kid in this generation to save up and to have a real big rainy day fund just because that won't make too much sense to them for the most part just because they haven't lived through anything like a great depression um something like that so it's interesting you bring that up because it's like my parents have a different view of money and i the the the, the biggest example i can share with you is you know, they say, they're saying that we're in a recession now. And with the way I'm approaching it, this is the first recession as an adult for me where I have disposable income, right? And through the books that I've read and through, through the experts that I listen to, it's important to, again, dollar cost average. And if you don't know what that is, dollar cost averaging is just putting in the same amount every single week, regardless of what happens in the market. It's not it's, you know, you don't fall victim to any emotions. You just, I'm just going to dollar cost average. This is what I'm putting yeah. aside to invest. Every couple of weeks, I just do the same thing. And I remember sharing with my parents that, that that's what I've been doing for a while. And, and they're like, oh, you should stop doing that now because we're in a recession. Hmm. You should stop and you should, you should keep cash and go to the bank and take money out and, and, and keep and wrap it up in newspaper, right? Yeah. And it was just really interesting to, to see the different ways of thinking about money that I now have and my hmm. parents have. And we're just kind of, one generation, right? It, it was it was crazy because they genuinely meant it. They were convinced that I needed to stop, that I can't invest. Yep. And then you read books about the recession, and during the recession is where the most amount of wealth is made. If you can stick to a boring strategy and just continue to dollar cost cost average. Yep. Yeah, I love it. I think that, that's a really cool topic, and I think one that would be really interesting now is like, I wonder. Just as when we were growing up, what our relationships were with money, like how you went about either acquiring it, what your view was, like did you just have a normal part-time job? Did you do other bits and pieces? Like what was your sort of relationship with it just early on? For me early on, it was something that was very high priority. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that that's why mum and dad, Mum was sewing at home when I was young. And not only was she sewing at home seven days a week, she also had a, you know, we turned our entire backyard into a veggie patch so that she would be able to grow vegetables from it and then pick the vegetables at night. And then the next day in the morning, go to the local grocery store and sell them a bundle of chives for, you know, 10 cents. Right. So, so in every, 
every single way possible, my mom and my dad were trying to monetize and make money. So mom was sewing, growing vegetables. Dad worked two jobs at a factory and on the farm. And growing up, I just saw a massive amount of scarcity. And I saw them working their ass off for money. So to me, money was one of the most important things growing up. So I, I think I had, and maybe part of me still has an unhealthy relationship with money because I still think it's the most important thing. I've done a lot of work to, to, to understand that it's not, but a huge part of me is just, yeah, yeah, just this is the most important thing. And I can tell you now during the recession, like as we're experiencing it now, there was a big part of me that felt like, yeah, I've got to just keep all this money. I can't, you don't invest any of it. This is crazy. Definitely that was in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. So I had to update that psychology quite dramatically. Otherwise, I would I'll do what my parents were saying to me to do, telling me to do. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. I was I was thinking about this a little bit just in preparation for this podcast. And I reckon my my relationship with money's has always been very random. Like like if somebody asked me what my philosophy towards it is, it's so hard to really lock in and describe because it, it just feels very like sporadic and fluid, right? Because when I grew up, we grew up in a household where like neither of my parents were educated. Um, no one really like took their career too seriously, right? Like my dad, like if I think about like the 20 year period that we were kind of living together or 16 year period, he probably worked for about five of those years right? At the back end of that, then my mum started working and then just purely out of the survival of the family, then she she started working um, at a factory and working 12-hour night shifts, right? To to help us survive and do all of those other bits and pieces. But like, no one, like it was never a huge, it never felt like it was a massive priority, right? Like even when my mum worked, she just loved going to work because her friends were there, right? Like it wasn't one of those things. It's like, oh, I'm just working really hard and doing all these things. Like she always put such a positive spin on yeah, like it's it's something that I enjoy doing. I'm I'm going and sort of engaging with the crew and part of a team. I'm doing all these other bits and pieces. And then on the other hand, I sort of saw my dad. He's like, I think he always wanted money, but would never really figure out or take action in terms of actually acquiring that. Like the, I never really grew up as well with any sort of like pressures of, all right, you need to go to uni or you need to do that. Things like even with mum, the advice is always just sort of do what you love. It'll all sort of work out in the end and go down that path, right? And when I look back on it, all these strategies were seem very high risk, right? And probably not a great foundation for for how to manage finances. So then I think I started then looking around just probably more with friends and family members outside of the immediate family where it's like, okay, well, because we, we did have like some people like that I went to school with and all that where parents were like either just middle class or doing things. It's like, ah, oh, now this is what more like financial stability looks like. You know, because like sometimes I would sit there when I was like 13, 14, I'd be calling up like electricity companies and negotiating like how to keep the lights on and like finding creative ways of, it's like, all right, I'll, like we owe $200. Like how about I send you five bucks and we'll keep, we'll just keep it going for a week. And they're like, no, 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 but you owe 200. I'm like, well, I've just offered five. Like, are you going to say no to a 12 year old that's offering you $5 to actually keep this thing going? Because otherwise I'm, it's going to be zero and you're going to cut off the power of a 12-year-old kid. Like, you don't really want to do that, right? So then we'd get like, it would always just be a constant negotiation just for services and getting by and like just sort of hacking different things together. So I think what that helped form, so probably 
as I jam on this around how it formed my sort of financial strategy, one part was to use sort of negotiation to create value just became a part of how I grew up, right? Like even things like, because we didn't have much money, if I wanted something, I knew that would never be able to pay like retail price or just to buy that thing at full price. It was always finding out, all right, can I call up like 15 different places and then figure out if there's a better deal to be had here? Is there a sales price? Is there a price matching that can be done or whatever it was? It'd go nearly through the full process of it. And then it'd be like, okay, now, now I could probably scrounge up enough here if I go and sell a couple of these things that I've got lying around the house or whatever it is. And I'll be able to figure out a way to then sort of structure that up to get what it is that I wanted. So I think it started off very short term, right? Like saving and all of that was never a thing. And the other thing was, is I never ever got into debt because we never had any like financial standing to be able to get into debt, right? Like, so there was no opportunity to even get a credit card. There wasn't any of these things. So I always- Probably a I good think, thing. <laughs> amazing thing, right? Like even still today, like I've never had a personal credit card. You know, like it's always just been like you just buy things that you can pay for, you know, and that's, I think, just got inbuilt just from a young age. So it's like these little lessons were sort of happening along the way. Um, And then I sort of started refining sort of my strategy. But at the end of the day, I think the core part that would define my strategy and my relationship with money is like I call it I just never want to lose sleep over financial types of matters. Right. So that, I think, and that's what I'm probably programmed to very much asking myself with any decision that I make that's a financial one is, is this going to cause me any unnecessary stress or am I going to lose sleep over it? Otherwise, it's not really worth pursuing that desire. Hmm. And I, I love that in, in, in your experience with money, it's also revealed where your, your love for deal making and resourcefulness comes from too, right? It, it all yeah. came from a lack of it. A lack yeah. of money. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like Oliver you, Twist, you know, like just sort of yeah. cruising around the streets, like getting potatoes where you can. Um. <laughs> it made me think of another part of my, my past when I was young in terms of relationship with money. A lot of, I, I, I feel, I remember when young, when I was young, a lot of my pain and a lot of the arguments my mum and dad would have would be around mm-hmm. money. And it wasn't because my dad was a big spender or a gambler or anything like that. It was, it was really sad because my dad and his brothers all came to Australia, uh, refugees from Vietnam, but there were still so many relatives in Vietnam who couldn't make it over. And so my dad was over here with all of his brothers and they all worked their asses off and they would send money back to Vietnam every single three months. And, you know, you send what you can, but my dad would always send at times more than we have. Right, he he wouldn't leave enough at home for 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 my mom and me, etc. Because he his heart was just in pain for all of the relatives that were just, you know, left for dead over there. And I think that's a common story for a lot of refugees' family. They work really hard over here, and then at the expense of not looking after themselves at times, forgetting that, kind of sending all their money away. Yeah. So I I always looked at money as money is how you help people. Because that's how I saw my dad help others. And I always felt like if I had more money, I could help more people. And a deep-rooted part of my relationship with money is the more I have, the more people I can help. And, and I think that started for me quite young. And the first people I really wanted to help was my mom and my dad. 
You know, a lot of my ambition, a lot of my drive to make money comes from, I, I want to look after mom and dad. I want to look after my uncle and my aunties. I want to look after the people that I love. You know, and, and, it, and it's evolved over time. It's evolved over time to now, you know, I want to look after my community. I want to look after, you know, how can I look after my country? How do, you know, it, it starts to evolve more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I think a lot of the times when people think about money, I, I used to look at people who have a lot of money and think they're evil. Uh, I used to think of people who have a lot of money and go, oh, not good people. I bet you they're drug dealers. That's how they made their money. Mm-hmm. So I had a very negative outlook on money. But growing up now with experience, some of the wealthiest people I know are some of the kindest and most generous people that I know. You know, it's 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 fascinating. Yeah. So so for me as well, my relationship with money has been super clunky. It started super super painful. It, without it, it caused so much discomfort, so much pain, so many arguments. But then I was able to grow and see through that. That ah, oh, it was, you know, money helped dad help family members and. And as he made more, he improved my life, mom's life, my brother's life, and the lives of all those around us. It was, yeah, it's interesting to look at the evolution of the relationship we have with money. Yeah, for sure. And I think it probably changes, right? Because when you're very young, the reality is, is money's probably going to be a little bit more self-centered, right? As you get older and if you, if you acquire more and more like money or if you have that level of abundance that's available. I think it naturally probably then forms into thinking around contribution and impact and how you can help those around. And I think that that's also a really interesting concept. Like I know the, say the concept of saving, for example, is brought up in the book too. And Mm. I've, I've heard a couple of differing views on this recently, right? Like where it's okay. Is saving just universally important or is it something that is has varying degrees of importance depending on where you are in your life stages. And I think that's, that's a really interesting concept here is like, how do you then evolve your relationship with money as well as you go through those different stages? Because it is, it is pretty different, right? Like, like say for example, if you're an 18 year old or if you're advising an 18 year old and say they were earning X amount, right? I don't know, maybe a thousand dollars a month or something or $1,500 a month. And they're at the age where deep down they just want to travel, they want to go to Europe, but they've got this philosophical belief that I should just be saving that money, right? Now, the reality is, is say in this person's example, maybe they'll then go to uni or they'll then, it's very likely in three to four years they're going to be potentially earning $60,000 a year instead of $12,000 a year. Like would the advice be to save really diligently on your 12000 and just keep that and put it into a 30-year investment fund? Or is the advice go and spend that and go on your Europe trip now when you're 18 and enjoy it and then know that you'll earn um, in the future where you'll be able to easily save $5,000 or whatever it is that you're going to save this year and you'll be able to top it up. Like, What's your thoughts on situations like that and like just blanket advice that generally gets thrown around? <laughs> With cash. I, I, I would say that regardless of where you are, I think saving is a very important habit to develop. Even if you make $1,000 or $500 a month, it, it's not to say that if you're making 1500 bucks a month, you should save 1000 mm-hmm. of it, right? It's just about, well, if you make 1000 bucks, put aside 50 bucks a month, Yeah. right? Put aside $50, put aside $100, put aside $25. It's really just about developing the habits so that when you do get access to $60,000 a year, mm-hmm. you already have ingrained habits that allow you to manage your money better. 
because you don't you don't get taught money management skills at school. You don't get taught money management skills at university. Your job doesn't teach you how to manage your money. That yeah. that's something that either mum and dad teaches you, your friends teach you, teach you, or, or you you learn yourself. And I feel that the majority of us, me me included, like you don't learn this stuff because there's already so much going on, bloody bloody in life, that we tend to drop the ball on financial education. So to me, if you start saving early, then at least you're learning one of the universal laws and adopting one of the universal habits so that when you make your you know, thousands of dollars yeah. per month after that, 10, 20s of thousands of dollars or whatever it is you make, you now have incredible habits yeah. that uh, are just going to be healthy for you. What about you? Like what do you what do you think? Because it felt like while you were saying that you're thinking you should just go all in fifteen hundred bucks on the travel. <laughs> well, I don't know because it changes, right? Like I'm not, I'm obviously not yeah. in that situation anymore. I probably, when I was eighteen, I would have gone all in on the travel just because that's where I was at yeah. in life. But who knows what the outcomes would have been? Like, like so, I've got this story like where I worked at a university pretty early on after I finished uni myself. And at universities in Australia, you get a thing called superannuation, right? And at a university, that superannuation is pretty decent. Like, so say if the normal superannuation percentage is about 9%, unis generally give you 17%. And then back then they used to give you like a bonus off another 7%, right? But I'm a, I was a 21 year old at that time. And then I'm looking at the pay slip. And I'm like seeing this massive chunk of money going into this thing called superannuation. And then one's like a voluntary contribution. And I'm like, that's at least two nights out with my friends <laughs> that's going into this thing called superannuation, right? And I remember calling them up and then being like, is there any way that I could just reduce this down? Like, say, can I take, can I just have the standard like 9%? And then I'll take the additional like 17 or whatever that's getting put in there as a little bit of a bonus. Can I just be paid that um, for the moment? And they're like, oh, no, sorry, like you can't really do that. Now, if I look back now as a 36-year-old, if I'd made that move and they'd agreed to that phone call that I made, the actual financial outcome of that at this point would have been significantly greater than the couple of nights out additional that I might've had with my friends that we would have, you know, maybe had a nicer meal or drunk a few more beers. Like, so when I look back on that, it's like, it's really hard to advise 18 and 21 year old version of yourself on those things mm. because I can't sit there and lie and say, yeah, I would have made the sensible decision. But then having that decision taken out of my hands is something that I would, I will now benefit from significantly when I'm age 60. So I think it just is one of the, and I think the book really talks about this really well is it says that this game of money and finances and everything that we're playing, like as humans, we've got thousands of years of ancestry sort of, you know, DNA and all of that. We've been playing the money game collectively for 50 years, call yeah, it, no, or 70 so years or like something like that, right? Like I think it says in the book that the American version of superannuation or like the 401k only started in like the 80s. Right. So that's so new. Like modern banking systems and everything have been around for whatever, right? Like people that can benefit off compound interest and all that, realistically, from investing in index funds probably isn't all that old either. So, like, we're still learning this game and it's a skill, which I think it's why it's a really interesting topic to chat about. But yeah. Well, it's, it's something that my parents, my parents, the only thing that my parents did out of this book, I would say, is save. Mm. 
my parents never really invested much you know early in their lives they barely ever did it if, if if it wasn't for one of my uncles who went to university if he didn't care enough to come back to look after his other brothers to teach them and educate them again again it's just that that migrant mindset when you come over here you're not as educated well for my parents anyway in their situation they weren't as educated you know a year eight education is all they had and then you just all you know how to do is save you don't know how to invest mm-hmm. My parents don't still today. My dad doesn't know what an index fund is, right? It's just mm. there. There are so many unknowns here, and I, I think the the scary thing is that if we didn't go off and read some of these books or have friends who are accountants or financial advisors, far out, we wouldn't know any of this ourselves too. Yeah, it, it's it's kind sure. of bizarre that we don't get taught any of this. Mm. Yeah, isn't that crazy? We, we all go to school for 10, 20 years to get degrees that ultimately make us lots of money, but then we don't get taught how to manage the thing that we go to school to be able to make. Yeah, that, that we're meant to be working for, that we commit so much time and effort into. We don't yeah. really get an education on how to practically handle that and, and handle it for the time and the stage of life that we're in, the, say the country right. or the environment that we live in, like, because it does vary too, right? Like managing money in Australia is going to be very different to managing money in the States or managing money in a developing country or managing money when you've got different sort of financial and community connections versus say in the Western world where for the most part, people live largely a lot more independently, right? It's like you nearly need different handbooks, for different stages, right? Like say if you're a young family and you're looking at saving up for your first house and you're operating on a single income, the money management strategy is going to be very different to a retiree that's at the back end of their career. And it's like we nearly need different handbooks for different stages, it feels like. And and you also have to know what you want out of it. I mean, what I thought was the most interesting part of this book was when they did the research study on was there a was there a correlation between people becoming happier as they made more money? And they found mm-hmm. that there was no correlation between more money and happiness. However, there was a correlation between happiness and control of your time. Yeah. And and I, I remember messaging you immediately the moment I read that that chapter. And I never thought about happiness and joy being about control. And and what the book talked about is, and it's a it's a string of it's almost like a, a poetic rhyme, but it's saying when you wake up in the morning and you can do what you want, when you want, with who you want, wherever you want, for as long as you want, that is a better dictator of you being happy as compared to you making more money. It's freedom and it's control of time. And I thought that is that is such a fascinating view because for the longest time, all those around me when I was young Happiness seems to have come from possessions. Happiness seemed to have come from a bigger house because, you know, when, when uncle got the bigger house or the whole family came over and everyone seemed so happy and he was so happy. And I thought, oh, that's, that's happiness. He's new house, boat. Oh, get a boat. He seems super happy in his boat. So that's why I've always had that, that mindset of money does bring you happiness because it brings you more material and material things and possessions. But this was one of the first few times I read it and went, huh, it's about, it's not about that. It's about you being able to do what you want to do. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's largely how you're able to live your life, Ali. I think 
you've you've been living that the best out of everyone that I know is you've always never made money to buy things. You've always made money to to be able to achieve freedom. You know, it's one of your biggest values is, is freedom. And I think that's probably one of the things I admired most about you. I just never was able to tie those two things together is that you just, yeah, you have this incredible control of your time. And I think that's what makes you so happy. And and, and now I've learned that too. So that's, I wrote it at the front of my journal because on the front of my journal, I've got two pages where I write the most important lessons I've learned in the year. That made it to that front page for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, mean, the book I think literally- the um, I I just haven't seen too much evidence of being able to like like that whole narrative of if you just accumulate large amounts of wealth, it'll automatically equal happiness. I like even being younger, I remember like seeing that even with some of our family members, and I'm like, it just doesn't match up. Because you'd see, you'd come across like even you'd go to family friend functions and all that where there'd be like the rich uncle or, you know, the person in the community that's really well off. And then you'd see some of their behaviors and I'd look at how they're operating and I'm like, yeah, great. Like there's a nice car there and there's a nice house, but the level of substance doesn't really match up with what I was kind of looking for. I'm like, Mm. just automatically this person having a large bank balance hasn't made them a person that I'd necessarily want to aspire to become. You know, and and I think that's where it was very different when you see like, and then I had, so the the best example that I had was my mum's sort of sister and her husband, uncle, he was probably one of the only people in our extended family that was pretty well off, but he was the opposite where he had had success in business, but then he was also just like what you mentioned for just one of those fundamentally amazing human beings that would then, you know, like the way that he treated his family, his wife, everyone around him, like it was like the gold standard off. All right. This is something that I would then want to then aspire to potentially become. So it was a big inspiration kind of when I was growing up, but it was the first time that I'd kind of seen somebody that, especially in our culture where generally people that had money in our culture acted like douchebags, you know, like that was a pretty common theme other than him. You know, he was like the outlier within uh, the group of people that had it. And like, because even our family, like we were mostly looked down upon um, in that community just because like a, (laughs) probably just culturally how my family went about things, but then also just where they stood sort of financially was very different to, to the rest. So yeah, it was interesting just to see. Yeah. Okay. So maybe, accumulation of wealth and things just isn't really the end goal here. There's also the other part around how you then operate it, which you touched on earlier. But I mean, I still think that's pretty crazy. You were able to see through that when you were so young, because I definitely wasn't able to see through that. Mm. Uh, And I think now it's even harder to see through because everyone who takes a picture with a new car or a new watch or something on social media, the the facial expression behind that picture is one of extreme happiness. (laughs) Right, it's never that, looks it's sad, that, do they? It's, it's in like, front of the Lamborghini, no, you never see somebody no, crying, don't. crying, <laughs> sitting in their Lamborghini. <laughs> like, no. But they've also they've also mastered that that laughter that that looks really natural, but you you know couldn't have been because <laughs> yeah. how did you time it so perfectly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, but it's 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 harder to see through it now more than ever because people are seeing a snapshot of a material thing paired with an extremely happy facial expression right Mm -hmm. 
And whereas you got to see more context because you were able to see through some of that. But it, it's it's funny as you were saying that. I just thought back to my past, and even though I didn't have social media when I was young, and I saw the people around me who had stuff, I wasn't able to see past it. I I, yeah. I just saw, damn, these people seem so happy in their beautiful BMW. You know, in and when I was young, it wasn't a BMW, man. That 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 most epic car when I was young that you know anyone in my neighborhood would have was a Toyota Land Cruiser. <laughs> you know, if you sat in a Toyota Land Cruiser, damn, man, you you drive down the street in that. And if you're one of the kids in the back, all the other kids are going, man, I I'd be so happy in that car. There's so yeah. much space in there. You know, it's <laughs> it's like it a mini just, house. This is amazing, dude. It, it really was. And it was a V8, you know, it was a V8 yeah. SUV. And I just, I don't know, it was, it was really, it's really kind of profound that you were able to see through that and realize that that doesn't bring you happiness because, man, up until my <laughs> mid-30s now, am I only starting to realize that, hey, that's not the way. That's not really the way. There's, there's many other ways. Maybe, and, and, you know. But maybe it was just that, like, in your case, your family members that did have money were genuinely happy too, right? Like I had maybe a different, I think this is where it goes back to how we grow, like how we grew up really shapes probably our relationship with money too. And that, that forms a core foundational part of our mm. views on what we do, especially in our early years, right? Because even when I think about mine, like, like it, it just wasn't, in our face a lot of the times in that sense. Right. Like, right. I don't know. It, it was one of those things that like, there was always the desire to sort of have a better life. Like that was always goal number one. Um, but yeah, like, do, do you think, do you think some time. of it, do you think some of it was sour grapes? You know, how, oh. how you see other people have something you're like, Oh yeah, but I don't really need that to be happy. Do you think it was a, was there a little bit of that involved? For sure it would have been, like I think. Yeah. Like I think like especially with like the way that my parents would have gone about it, like being around other family members that did have stuff. Like I'm mm. I can't remember it that clearly anymore, but I'm sure there would have been conversations, especially on my dad's side, where it'd been like, Oh, that person's so good anyway, or whatever it is, you know, like just to sort of offset the fact that we didn't have those things. Sure, that probably existed to an extent. But I think when I now look back, even just as you said that, the thing that I was always thinking about was more just around how when I grow up, like I wanted to probably create a different world for myself and what would then become my family, you know, from what I then grew up with. Like there was definitely an element of call it trying to break the cycle that existed pretty deeply. Um, now, whether that was financially driven or not, but it, maybe it was more experiential driven, like there was more experiences of different sort of worlds that I wanted to try to experience. Um, that was... That was something that was probably there. Okay. Well, look, mm. I, I really think uh, a really important concept in this book, I think it was chapter three, was the whole concept of never enough. Mm. And I, I, again, needed to hear that again because I, I feel like at times I always keep moving the goalposts yep. and I never allow myself to kick a goal because every time I'm close to a goal, I just go, oh, we'll just, we'll move it. We'll move it further down. <laughs> 10 meters back. And then, yeah, and I, I, it just made me reflect on that. I, 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 don't, I don't celebrate a lot of my victories because I keep moving the goal. So it's like playing a game of soccer, just about to kick a goal and then I move the goalpost down another, 
you know, football stadium. And it just made me really just reflect in the last couple of weeks as we were reading this book and preparing for this podcast. I just thought to myself, you know what? I have kicked some goals and I'm not going to move the goalpost. And it just felt really satisfying <laughs> to, to almost pat yourself on the back and, yeah, and go I to your wife and say, hey, hey, I kicked the goal. That was cool. And, you know, classic yeah. my wife, Pei Wen, she yeah. just kind of goes, yeah, that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Move the goalpost like, back, you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Why can't you run around screaming and, you know, cheer for me? Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. There's, there was something to it that felt really nice. When yeah. I, I just kind of went, hey, that's actually really cool. You know, I, I don't have to continually push for more all the time. It just, it was a good reminder. It was a good reminder that, yeah, you've got to be, you've got to understand what is enough for you. Otherwise, far out, it can cause you a world of pain. That's that's like a lot of, just the more that you were sort of chatting. Then I, I really like the concept of thinking of money as a game, mm. as well, and. It's sometimes hard just because of how personal a lot of our day-to-day experiences are linked to money, right? Like if you don't have enough money for something that's really important or whatever, it it ends up coming with a really big psychological weight or it can, right? And if that's been Mm. your relationship with money for a very long period of time where it's always been like a lack of or a scarcity component, I think it's very hard to then also look at the game of money like it is a game. But that's one of the things that I've always tried to keep in my mind just to separate my attachment to anything financial. Like even when we had no money, always just in the back of my head, tried to have a healthy relationship with it where money is a game. Like right now when I when we were like broke and we didn't have money, it was fine. It was like, okay, I'm just not playing the game well enough at the moment or I haven't figured out a way to win parts of this game. But I always tried to depersonalize it that like, me having, say, a lack of money, especially early on in my life, wasn't a reflection on me as an individual. Like, could you then still have mm. fun and make the most of whatever it was limited? Like, I remember Chantal and I, when we hooked up, like, there was a day when we used to work in a call center. That's where we met. And we had, like, probably $50 to our name. Or No, we had, like, zero. I think we had, like, $5, $10 to our name, right? Like, we had nothing. Like, we'd work casually a couple of shifts a week or whatever it was. And then we went down to the local news agency and, like, got a scratchy, like a $2 scratchy. It was probably the last. You gambled had. everything yeah. you had. Gambled, gambled <laughs> everything I had, all $2, put it down, ended up winning $100 on a scratchy, which was unheard of. And I, and I remember sitting there and being like, Oh my god, we we can't tell anyone about this. Like we've got to keep this a secret. Like we've just got like a hundred dollar oh, win here on this scratchy yeah. ticket. This is amazing. Like let's go get. There was this really nice gourmet meat pie place sort of near the <laughs> up the road. We went and bought like twelve, like a twelve dollar pie, and then we still Whoa. had like eighty dollars. We're like, geez, do we go rent like a DVD right now? Like maybe even get a new release. Like this is the thing. But it was just like again the ga- like having that sort of game relationship relationship with money where it was like, all right, like we just won a little bit of the game. Like let's now go and like unlock a little level, which was eating pies or whatever it was that experience. And then it's like, all right, let's play again. <laughs> like the next day, not that we bought scratchies again, but then I think it's just started being that one of those things where it's like, all right, at different points sort of in my life, I've always just viewed it as like, it's a thing that you kind of try to level up your character a little bit. Like there's a money bar. There's a lot of different other bars, like health and friends and relationships and all mm. that. But is there a way just to like still keep playing the game, but then level up that money game? And I remember even when we were younger, like 
chatting to just friends and they'd be like, oh yeah, I want to do these things and I want to do that. And like, I remember one day just having the conversation and, and it was like, yeah, that's awesome. Like this is, this is a model because a lot of the times people generally think about what can I do with the amount of money that I currently have, right? Mm. And that's sort of where the thinking nearly stops. It's like, oh, well, at the moment I have this amount. This is all the things that I'm obliged that I have to pay for and all that. I want to do this, but I can't. It's not even a possibility right now. And then it, the thinking kind of stops there. It's like, oh, well, if I just save for like five years or whatever, then maybe I'll get to that position. And then I remember just speaking to one of my friends. I'm like, all right, well, what if you just break down the way that you actually get your income? You know, like, is there a way that you can sell something on the side? Can you ask for a promotion? Can you upgrade your role? Like, are there other different moves that also increase the amount of inflow? And I think that sometimes can get lost, especially if there's a lot of fear and doubt mm. and like a lot of scarcity that's been inbuilt. I think it's really hard to look beyond the horizon of, oh, this is the only amount that I've got. I've got to hold on to it with my dear life. I've got to spend it really wisely. Otherwise, I'm massively at risk. You know, and and people have different sort of levels of call it their risk tolerance with this. Like some will be very sort of like secure and locked in and like, this is it. I'm not risking anything right now to change my current situation. But I think then at other times, even like I remember being younger with some friends of mine, I'm like, maybe there is a way here where you can play around and take a couple more risks here where it won't be that detrimental. You've probably got a higher upside on making that move than the downside of that move not working. It's it's hard to... It's hard to be able to do that, I would imagine, for your friend, especially if they're they're in a place where they're too attached to the money. They're too yeah. attached to it and, and also in a place with with extreme scarcity, right? The, the more extreme the scarcity. Yeah. And yeah, comfort and comfort is a form. Yeah. It, comfort is a trap as well. Because yeah. now you don't want to risk the comfort because now you're comfortable. And, and I feel like sometimes the only reason why you can think of, oh, is there a side hustle you can do? Do you think the reason you think of that is because, you know, you're an entrepreneur? Do you think, do you think that sometimes people don't think about these, these paths because they aren't as entrepreneurial or they haven't developed the entrepreneurial side of them just yet? Potentially. I don't even think it's necessarily entrepreneurial because like sometimes the moves that I saw could have been made like even internal, like, like working within – a job like it was either around because most of the time say like traditional working life even back then was you're trading x amount of hours for x amount of salary right so if there's a way that you can then sort of either increase the amount that you're getting paid for those number of hours which was generally around communicating additional value or becoming more valuable to that organization which most of the people that i was speaking to had a pathway for that to happen they just hadn't enacted on it yet right? Just because of fear of, I don't want to have that chat with the boss. I don't really know yet how to communicate the value that I'm actually giving to this organization. So I think it's nearly training. Like say if you are, say if this is about income generation, right? Where you're trading time for money. I think a big part of it is around how you can communicate value and the value that you bring, right? And I think that's something that can get lost in a lot of roles, you know, well, or sometimes so that opportunity doesn't really exist as well. Well, something you just said there that I, I, and this was a big shift for me because I used to think about trading time for money until I, you know, again, we, we got heavily involved in the entrepreneurial space. I, I started to learn that it's not about trading time for money. It's about trading value for money, Yeah. right? And, and the more value you're able to give, the more money that you're able to make. And, and that's when I really started to learn about how this whole, I guess, if we want to call it the money game really worked. Mm. 
I, I started to understand that, oh, right. So my time is limited. My time is capped. We all have the same amount of time. And if we trade time for money, then technically we all should make the same money. But it's mm-hmm. some of us add more value than others. So then I thought, okay, so how could I add lots of value? How can I scale the value that I add? And that's what drew me in the beginning to, to the online space because that was one of the first times I realized that, hey, if you created an online course, you're adding value in the online course. And especially if you make the online course entertaining and fun and everything, and you truly added value there, that online course is just code that's being executed over and over and over and over again for you while you're in bed and going to bed, like going to sleep. Yep. Yep. And it just made me, it changed my psychology when it came to money completely. When I, when I stopped thinking, oh, it's just time for money. Because when I was 14, dude, I used to work on a cherry farm in South Australia in Gummaraka. I used to wake up early in the morning. Uh, I, I got, it's so dodgy. A random guy would just rock up at my house with a van. I would get in the van fully covered because we couldn't let the people at the farm know that I was you know, 13 years old <laughs> because I was 18 working on the farm. Yeah. And then they would take me there. He would charge me 20 bucks and he had a van full of people and mm-hmm. all of them, he was charging 20 bucks. So this guy was a genius. And yeah. then I just thought, okay, well, the farm only allows us to work from four in the morning till 12. So 10 bucks an hour, four till 12, that's the only amount of money I can make per day. Mm-hmm. So it was so limiting when I mm. thought it was trading time for money. But then the unlock happened and that, that changed the way I played the game forever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's something in that piece like, yeah, there's something big around communicating value. It's just well, it, and it, even there's now, something big around. Seeing, it's I, sorry to butt in there, but I no, think no. it's not just about communicating the value. It's also about developing that value, mm. creating the value, and then communicating, of course, right? Yeah. Whereas a lot of the times, we we always feel underappreciated. Yep. We always feel like we're you know, people are not valuing us as, as valuable as, as we are. So it's, but, but it's, sometimes it's about, you know what, letting some of that ego go. And then what if you doubled the value you currently added now? Because if you're yeah, able to do sure. that far out, sometimes you don't even need to communicate that. It, it comes across, right? For sure. And that was one of the things, like, I remember even when, when I worked sort of the normal corporate roles that I've had previously in my career, one of the biggest things that I'd always ask the main sort of decision maker or like whoever the, you know, the manager or the boss was at that time, it's like, mm. what are your top three priorities? Right. Like, mm. and then get real good clarity on what they are and then try to figure out if there was a way that I could impact those three priorities. And then as soon as I thought there was a window there, it's like, okay, well, if I can help you achieve like two of these, mm. do you think we could maybe do this, this, and this in like, 12 months time or six months time so that it's like the game was nearly set. Whereas a lot of the times when we're working, there isn't really a game already set, you know, and it's hard to get that clarity. And sometimes you need to figure out, it's like, okay, well, what does that then look like? But I think when you have clarities on like, what is the game? Because even again, you go back to the game analogy, like treating work like a game, if that's something that you want to do is very achievable where you find out, all right, well, who are the key players here? What are the different levels that I need to go through? What are different skills that I need at each of those levels to develop? What are some of like 
what are some of the outcomes I need to achieve to then progress into the next level there? If you have that, I think it becomes a pretty cool self-motivating tool as well. It can even make the game a little bit more enjoyable. Um, it could build a stronger relationship with the team and the leadership of that team as well. So I think this is just a potential way, especially if you're working inside an organization to then look at that role a little bit differently because it's going to be very rare, right? Like I've never worked in an environment where the boss came to a staff member and said, you know what? You're doing such a great job. I'm just going to increase what, what we're giving you right now. Like I just never, ever saw that happen because it's never really like the environment just isn't really designed for that. What I would see though, is like when people would have their sort of personal, like professional development things at the end of the year, where they'd have that chat and they'd be like, you know what? Like I've done this, 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 and this, these were the outcomes. These are amazing. I want to take on this, 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 and this. I'm going to contribute way more time and energy to achieve those things. If I then do this, do you think you'd what you'd increase me to this? And I've mm-hmm. conversation play out positively over and over again. Um, and then just going back to the money conversation, like say in a world where you might have a finite amount where you can trade your money for that salary, call it, it just provides another tool for an open conversation around negotiation. And then it's also, you get clarity, like, like, all right, well, if I'm adding all of this value, but then I'm not increasing the reward for that value, then maybe the alignment isn't there anyway. Um, and we're seeing that right now. Like I remember speaking to an owner of, um, multiple restaurant chains. And it's like, just right now we're seeing that happen in so many different industries, like whether it's hospitality or even logistics delivery, where supply and demand is very much changing the way that different roles were valued and the value of those roles as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And, and I love that you gave the pragmatic thought there as well. You can set a goalpost with your boss, you know, you can almost say to him, look, if we achieve X, Y, and Z, then I'd love a review in 12 months time, you know, so you know, at least you, you set that communication nice and clear. That's really cool. And, yep. and, and the reason why, you know, while you're saying that, I, I realize it's so foreign to me is I've never really held down a job. You know, I, when I think back to the, the, the two jobs that I held down for the longest periods of time was working at a petrol station and at a bar. You know, and, and I had those for about a couple of years. And that was the, were the only two jobs I did. And, and again, no raise, no nothing, same pay mm-hmm. all throughout the two years. You know, it didn't matter how many extra things I started to do around the place, same pay, yeah, no changes. Mm. Yeah. So I think, I think learning to have those conversations, not being afraid of them is super important because it unlocks the game for you and you're able to make more money. And then you're no longer just trading time for money. I think- Again, just a, such a powerful unlock there. It's not just time for money. It's, it's value for money. And then getting and super aligned necess- with the value. Yeah. And not even necessarily just always about money as well, right? Like it could be other things like you could unlock development right. opportunities, um, mm. you know, doing different things, developing different skills, um, engaging with different people within the organization. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial goal. Like sometimes it could even be detrimental. I think in some organizations, people are like, oh, yeah, I, I took the job just because of more money. But then the trade-off there yeah. is they didn't get to work Bad for the culture. best leader, you know, within yeah, the yeah. organization or they changed company and all of a sudden they're just miserable working for an organization just for a slide up in the in the cash. So I think it's really figuring out holistically also what it then looks like. But And you, that's probably just you, fundamental like psychology around both the acquisition of call it money 
and then they can then maybe form how you how you then spend it and save it and invest it or whatever. We're talking about spending money. The the most fascinating psychological principle in this book is the man in the car paradox. I remember when I read that, I went, that is so true. And yeah. and the man in the car paradox is uh, simply put, no one is, is no one is as impressed with your possessions <laughs> as much as you are. I love right? that. Right. And and it's 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 funny because when they broke it down, they said, okay, you, you bought a really nice car. You're sitting in the car, you're driving around, and you see people dropping their jaws going, whoa, that's a really cool car. And then you're sitting there going, they're all dropping their jaws at me, baby. They think yeah. I'm the shit. You know, I'm the, yeah. oh, look at me. Yeah. But really, they're, they're just dropping their jaws at the car, not at the car. <laughs> it's like, and, and they're also thinking about, damn, I would look so cool in that car. So they're, all they're doing when they're dropping their jaws is they're thinking about how cool they would feel when they're in your car or when they're right. in a car like that. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the paradox. They, they want Whereas, something very bad to happen to you so they can take that car away from you. Like that's the uh... – <laughs> but, then, but then it's funny because the, the dual reality there is that the, the person sitting inside the car is going, wow, I'm, I'm the shit. I'm so cool. But then the person on the outside of the car is going, man, I would be so cool in that car. And because of that miscommunication <laughs> – it's it creates this illusion where where we all think that wow you know, by getting that car I'm going to win the respect of all those around me whereas really when you get that car all the people around you they're just going to think wow yeah. that would be such an amazing car for me to be in myself and, and people would respect me you know it's fascinating the, the biggest winner in things that are linked to status or like status symbols are the marketing teams who are behind yeah. the products that were created. Right, the companies like they are yeah. <laughs> the companies that are able to find yeah. that special source where everyone desires they either want to be inside that car or they want to be mm. watching that car or that piece of clothing or that jewelry like they're the winners but the actual people experiencing it i'm not sure they win as much as what the uh, <laughs> the companies and the creators and the marketers do uh, but that's the world that we live in right like it's a consumer based society where we're told that hey you're feeling unhappy right now like here's this billboard buy this product and we'll make you feel happy so we've been, we get a million of those messages sent into our brains every single day that are telling us that if we have this, then we will feel like this. And unfortunately, a lot of the time that, that feeling has varying degrees of fleeting moments of joy, I think. You know, two, two weeks ago, my dad wanted to buy a new dining table and I, I immediately went, all right, dad, let's, let's go down to Harvey Norman. Let's go look for, for a nice dining table to, to get you and mum. And then my dad goes, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not buying a new one. Uh, we, we're going to, my dad started to go on to Gumtree, which is an Australian kind of you know, secondhand site. And then he started looking. I was like, no, no, dad, let's, let's go get a new one. Like, don't get secondhand. I'm, I'm happy to get you something new. I'll get you a nice new dining table, however many seats you want. And he goes, no, 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 no. He, he just kept arguing. I'm like, all right, fine. You, you look for it and, and send me the link first. My dad finds a 40-year-old dining table on Gumtree. And then I go hire the trailer and we go pick up this dining table that was 40 years old. And the most incredible thing about this 40-year-old table was that it was owned by this Italian couple. And when I got to their house, they had a leather cover over the dining table. (laughs) They pulled it off so my dad could inspect it. A 40-year-old dining table didn't have one scratch on it. Jeez. Blew my freaking the heaviest thing I've ever carried in my life. Thank God my brother and Dan was there because we, we carried it into the trailer. And then my dad in the car just said to me, he just goes, you know, 
you know, son, you know, I love you. You're very generous, but son, you, you live in a world now where you don't try to fix anything. You always, the solution for you is always buy it new. And, and it was, it was this, this moment I had with my dad in the car where I just went, oh, wow, damn, he's right. And it's that consumerism again. It's always buy things and throw it away, buy things and throw it away. And then just seeing my dad go to the trouble of finding this. And then my dad can't speak English that well, speaking to an Italian family that couldn't speak that well. And it's like all this you know, drama I had to get involved in everything to get this table. But my dad did all of that just to not be wasteful. Mm-hmm. And it was really inspiring, man. It just made me go, damn, I need some of that Asian frugality back in my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, love so much money, you know? oh. I just love the amount of like time that you allocated to this uh this adventure as well like at the end of the day like oh. by the sounds of it your dad had the easy job like you you carried the table you negotiated i did it. You, you had to broker between two languages right like going down to harvey norman might yeah. have been the better option look i'm just <laughs> <laughs> i don't yeah, know if the moral just- of this story is well- this strong well, no, no, it is because no, I, I, I've been I've I've been for the longest time trying to like again. This is another example, right? I've been thinking yeah. about getting a an, an office space, and and we can talk about this live, right? Because I, I've been thinking about getting an office space, and even you've been messaging me. So, how's the office going? How's the office going? Yeah. And then I just thought, man, what what would my dad do? And my dad <laughs> would just <laughs> I'm gonna find some old Italian family and then hire their lounge room. <laughs> <laughs> and just just turn it into a co-working a space. co-working sp- that same family where there's a gap now where that dining table was you just bring that's your own sort office. of chair and yeah that's in your office uh, no but then but then i just thought to myself you know what and then you know what i came up with brother for me the reason i wanted to get an office the reason behind it was because i, I feel like i i need to go into a period of creation in my life uh, i need to go into a period of you know creating new content new modules just creation. I, I, I want to go into a phase of you know, three to six months of creation. And I wanted a, a creative space. But then all the stuff I'm looking around me, it's a three-year contract, it's 50, 60 grand for a tiny little office. And then I just thought, all right, if I'm going to be better with money and trying to improve the psychology of it, what skills do I have? How can I be more resourceful? Okay, I, I'm a very resourceful kind of guy. And then I realized the most incredible thing, Ali, I've got a really epic Jeep, mm. right? And I, I now just made the decision to, I'm going to look for hip camp and hip camp is like the Airbnb of land where mm-hmm. lots of landowners all around Australia have these incredible blocks of land that you can just pay 25 bucks for and you can camp overnight. Oh, so I'm going to take my Jeep. I've got a massive awning. I've got a table. I'm going to bring my laptop. I've got a mobile internet dongle. <laughs> I'm going to go to different locations, set up at 7am in the morning and be creative for two or three days at That's a time. That's cool. I love that. You said, and 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 that saved myself fifty grand a year instead of getting an office. And now I get to be out in nature, being creative, stimulated by the things that I love and care about. And that was all because my old man reminded me, you know, use the things you have. You know, yeah. don't always buy new. Yeah. Yeah. I really like this again. Just going back to the pragmatics around spending strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. And like breaking that down a little bit. And I remember it was probably a combination of a few different books where the uh, the strategy that was essentially outlined or what I sort of went with was look back over statements over the last six months, three to six months, and then highlight like what 
the key items are that stand out, right? Like, are there green items where you're like, yep, that was awesome, linked to a real peak experience, loved it, would want to have more of those line items on my financial statements if I could. Um, mm-hmm. Highlight, you know, the other ones maybe in blue, which is just like, this is just obligations, it's bills, it's day-to-day, it's whatever it keeps, you know, everything, life running, call it. Highlight them. They're kind of the core. And then it's like in red, highlight the ones where you see it and it makes you cringe a little bit. You're like, oh, did I really need to buy 55 coffees, you know, in the month of June? Or like- um, Get a coffee machine. Yeah, yeah. Like, (laughs) did I have to buy that, like, whatever, you know, whatever it is. The things that sort of make you just sort of irk and use nearly like the feeling methodology of how how those line items actually make you feel and whether they're, like, is it a more off? Is it a, this is just Mm. sort of- as it is, or is this something that I could potentially reduce? And then breaking it down because that can then nearly help drive the spending strategy a little bit more when you start breaking down. It's like, all right, well, which of the items you say, if you have a hundred items on your financial statements, like which of these green items are actually maybe resulting in 80% of the happiness that I have that's linked to financial expenditure. And then which of these ones are actually causing me misery? You know, like it could be credit card debt, it could be whatever it is. And then have the plan to sort of wipe some of those off, embrace the ones that are bringing lots of joy, like schedule those in, set aside more time for them. But it's nearly like a way, I was just thinking about that as you said, your strategy there, where you're like, all right, I could have the obligation of a three-year lease and massive overheads and all this thing for a thing and then feel the obligation to have to go and work at this place, right? That's right. That, that, that might end up becoming a red item or it could become a green item if you create really cool stuff. Or then you, you sort of thought a little bit more outside the box, nearly subconsciously with this type of strategy where you're like, well, what what other opportunities are you? Oh, I can actually go camping in a thing that I've already got at different locations, doing something that I actually enjoy even more, which is being out in nature. Like It just feels like as you were sort of talking through that, that the alternative that you thought of, not only is it financially better or potentially financially better for you, um, it feels like you might even get a better outcome out of it too because it's going to be more aligned. So I, I like that there's a couple of different things in there, just the the way that you thought of, like there's a very conventional way to solve the problem that you needed there, which was creativity, get a really nice office space, create and then solve, mm-hmm. but it might be expensive and come with other things. Or you went an additional layer of thinking there, which I think is a cool skill to develop. Like how else can you think about solving the same and- problem? And I also love that you you shared with everyone a tactic, kind of it's like almost like a self financial audit, and being able to label the things you've spent money on and how it's made you and how it makes you feel, you know, and just using feeling as a gauge. That's really cool because I definitely use feeling as a gauge because when I started to look at the contracts that these these officers were sending me, and I, I looked at the <laughs> three year contract, and I went, ah, oh, do I really yeah. want to be doing this? Am I even going to be there that often, you know, and all of that. And then, you know, then there's setup costs and then all of, all of that crazy stuff. And yep. it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good for me. Whereas then the moment I just thought about, oh, well, I can just, I can just take my car. I've got beautiful places 30 minutes away. I can be at a creek and set up my yep. setup and create for 10 hours and then drive home. You know, it's no obligation kind of thing. And it felt great. Mm-hmm. And it felt great. And, and it aligns with one of the lessons here as well. And it's that just be reasonable and rational. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes being reasonable is better than being rational is what the book talks about. And, and, and the key line, it says, 
you know, don't aim to be coldly rational when making financial decisions. Aim to be just pretty reasonable. Mm. It means don't, don't live spreadsheet to spreadsheet. You know, I, I, I'm still going to have to put a pretty epic awning on my car, which, you know, I'm going to do, right? It still costs money. But it's, again, I'm, 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 being, I'm being reasonable. I'm not just going to be rational. I'm not just, just going to use what I have and then put an umbrella out there and sit under an umbrella. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be reasonable. Yeah, and I think a lot yeah. of the times when you are too cold-blooded and rational, it takes the fun out of living too. I mean, I've got, I've got friends who, who live to an Excel, Excel spreadsheet almost. Mm-hmm. And you know they're quite abundant people. But again, nothing. We're not allowed to deviate from this. Mm-hmm. And then you can almost see the fun being sapped out of their lives when they never deviate from that strategy. And it's probably because they're too rational and not, not reasonable. Mm. I really like that. I think finding a really nice balance of rational fun mm. with money is nearly <laughs> an ideal outcome. You know, like mm. if I was thinking about what would align with me, you know, when we're talking about that, that sort of personal philosophy, like yeah. the serious elements that are linked to money like even things like when we've spoken about investing and stuff like that, I never get lit up by that. It's never something, even though I know deep down it's smart and it's something that you should probably do. Like even when I like look at my, like going back to that superannuation story, when I was talking through that, I'm like, mm-hmm. my superannuation still brings me no joy. Like it might when I'm 60 or whatever, but like the practical reality of it is like, I never open that letter and I'm like, hey, like how good is this? Like, <laughs> like I'm sure it's going to be amazing when I'm at retirement age or whatever it is. Yeah, like, well, that's because, it's, like, that's because it's like 30 years away for you. And so like, but I'm just so simple minded, I think with like, <laughs> just <laughs> very basic on it. But, but I love that thing around like, rational fun but then also in saying that you know like i probably joke about the aspect of investments but i definitely do have a percentage of my income and portfolio and investments that are for the longer term i just probably don't spend any time really thinking about them like they're all very well, autopilot style of yeah um moves, that's how it should be you know? yeah and then from all the books that we've read that's how it should be they, they say that sure you can dress sexy if you want but make sure your investment strategy is the most bland thing ever Make sure it's the most unsexy strategy ever. And, and it's funny because you read, no matter what book you read on investing and finance and money, it always comes back so far to the same strategy. I mean, even right it at is. the end, the author's like, so here's my strategy. <laughs> yeah. Dollar cost average into index funds. <laughs> you yeah. know what it's, Dollar cost average it's, into index funds. Draw down, don't have too much debt. Allocate right. 10% to like, charity and philanthropy and giving, allocate 20% to saving, live yeah. within your means within the other 70% and have an allocation for things that you enjoy, right? Like nearly every book and, and, seems and, and, to and end don't, up. Don't forget, and don't forget, allow, allow comping, com- compounding interest to do its part. To right? do its it's, it's, not, yeah. it's not trying to time the market. It's time in the market. And we're starting to hear the same things over and over and over and over again. And yeah. I, I guess I've just just growing up, you know. I I studied accounting in university, never finished a damn thing. But I, I've always were was around corporate finance guys who are in corporate finance, and and I guess when you're young, everyone's got this sexy plan on how they're going to make their millions of dollars and how they're going to you know choose the right stock and all of this. Mm-hmm. And then growing up around that, I've always thought that your investment strategy had to be just super engaging and super. 
you know, the moment you open up your strategy and you share it, I'm going to be like, whoa, man, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's going to, it's going to, the secrets yeah. of the world are going to be revealed like, by this genius. Yeah. I can't wait yeah. to start your strategy next week. You know? It's, yeah. But, but really, investing is just boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it is. It's super boring. And, and you have to learn how to, how to be consistent because again, it's, it really just comes down to dollar cost averaging. But the thing that, that really stood out for me in this that I never really thought about is save for the sake of just saving. Mm. That, that has never been a play in my playbook because mm. anytime I save and then there's a little bit of money growing there, I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do with it? What, what, are we investing it? Are, are, we, are we doing a reno? Are we, are we buying something? What are we doing? What are we doing with it? And I always bug pay when my wife with that. Anytime there's like a little pool of money, it doesn't have to be a lot. I'm not just, so, what, so, so what are you doing with that? What, why, why do you have that kind of money? What, what are you doing? And I'm just always trying to make, either make the money work for me or I'm trying to do, buy, buy something with it. Mm-hmm. I never thought of saving money just because. Mm-hmm. Because surprises happen. Because life's unpredictable. Because something bad could potentially be around the corner and you'll be grateful you have some savings. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, I've, I've never come across any book that's told me that. Just save for the sake of saving. Save Whereas saving. everything is yeah. safe for a deposit for an investment, save for a deposit for a house. Yeah. You know, but, but I thought that was, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. I think like just cash flow management is something that's really important. You know, and it's a concept that when you are in the business world, you just automatically have to learn about just because it's usually the lifeblood of the business and the venture. But mm. it's something even I think even for personal finance, just learning the basic concepts of cash flow and knowing when expenses are coming out, knowing how income's coming in, knowing when those dates cross over, when like having, you know, plans for when bigger ticket amounts that you can kind of predict are going to come out, having some rainy day funds for those unexpected events. Like I think that just is a foundational concept of knowing just some of those key numbers in your life. Like, Mm. you know, I I think I got asked that question just maybe five, six years ago. It's like, do you know how much is coming in? Do you know how much is going out? Do you know when it's coming in and going out? Do you know how much you owe if you do owe anything? Um, do you know where the opportunities are where, so then if you do need to invest in something, you can make that move, right? And getting that set up, if you have those foundations there, to me, like they're kind of like the basics that if I'm doing those quick checkpoints now where I'm at in life, it's like, that's what I'm sort of looking for. Yeah. Um, but like, especially in the entrepreneurship game, like when you're early on in it, it can be chaotic Mm. with like, Jesus, like you, you could sometimes have a matter of minutes and days where like that crossover, mm. if it doesn't go your way, there's very difficult conversations <laughs> that have to happen. And like the lights yeah. do get turned off and there's no negotiating on those things. So it can be quite like, and I love the book. It talks about this as well. Like it, it talks about the concept of just survival over a long period of time is sometimes yeah. a very key indicator of success, right? Like, and mm. there was a really cool concept, where it spoke about the game of Russian roulette, right? Like you can go play Russian roulette and yeah, if you win six times, it can be amazing, right? Like you can go extraordinary highs of winning there, but it's one of those games where the loss is just an end of game type of loss, 
right? So it's, and I love that concept of trying to play games where you're not really risking the entire farm, right? Like that, that's where there can be a danger where say if the ultimate downside is game over, then maybe you do want to incorporate some type of margin of safety, right? And I think even investment strategies, they have that nowadays where as soon as the stock goes down 20% and automatically cashes out or whatever, like you can put, I don't know the technical terms again, we're not financial advisors, so take none of the things that we've spoken about today with any grain of salt. Um, <laughs> go with your own vibes. But yeah, I think having that margin of safety with risk, that's something that really spoke to me because I really like those types of moves just in all aspects of life. Like I love moves that have potential upsides where you do need to have an element of risk with those, but the worst case scenario of that risk is actually never going to be completely detrimental. It doesn't wipe you out. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, that aligns with the out. with this move, can I comfortably still go to sleep at night? Right? Like yeah. I, I just love that notion of any move that's made links back to how is this going to impact going to sleep at night and how much unnecessary mental bandwidth is that decision going to then take? And it's – it's one of those decisions where it's not just to do with investing. Sometimes you see these decisions made in careers where you are playing Russian roulette, where they, they quit this career to start something new. And that could be something that's, it's like investing. Instead of investing your time in the career you have, you're investing in this whole new thing. You've got to be careful. And I love that, that mindset of don't bet the whole farm. You know, it's like if we just immediately sold everything we owned all forms of assets and then just invested everything into cryptocurrency, right? It's we, we don't know what's going to happen just yet. I think it's it's wise not to put the entire farm on that. Mm-hmm. But I but I think that the reason why people tend to do things like that and you do hear stories like that is because our time horizon is so short. Mm. Right? Our time horizon is so short because we want to make a bucket load of money as soon as we can so that we can buy certain material things. Because we think people are going to think we're really cool and then we win the, uh, the respect and the approval of all the people around us, which isn't a real game anyway. So it, it, often it's because of false pressures that we feel that aren't even real mm-hmm. that cause us to shorten our time frame and then make us do really risky moves that cause us to bet the farm and then lose the farm and then game over. Sure. And I think it's like, yeah, it's also with so many games, like what level of league do you want to play that game at? right? If you think about the game of money, we are always sold the Lamborghini level league, right? That's the aspirational, like call it the the pro level, the Elon Musk level or the Oprah Winfrey level of game where it's like, I've got to have that level of success um, in the money game because that's what's really aspirational. But the other reality is with this game of money, I think there's going to be different leagues that people want to play in. And it's about finding the right alignment off that level of game because as you play those different leagues, there's different elements of risk, time, bandwidth, weight, mm. potential stresses, potential wins as well. Like the, it does change, but it's being mindful of what that then looks like. Because I know so many people that play what you would in that level of it, you'd call just, they play casual local version of money game. You know, it's like park cricket, but they have so much fun in other areas of their life. And it's so enriched that it's there. The joy of the game is still so vibrant. You know, it's not based around acquiring heaps of money. Like if you think about 
even like the the Buddhist monk type of living, right? Like in the money game, you'd say it's very much local level, right? It's very, mm. very simple, humble. There's not much risk element to it. There's not really much to do with possessions. And then if you align with that, there can be great upsides. Now in saying that, that's not going to be for everyone, right? Like mm. if you told, I don't know, Warren Buffett that that's the model that he should then incorporate, he's probably going to be like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm pretty happy playing at this level off it, sitting on a golden chest of like, I imagine that he just dives into a pool of money every morning. And now nah, he's, he's actually by all reports, pretty, pretty humble and drives like a 1980s car and does all these other bits of things. But I think it's again, really aligning what type of level of money game it is that you're looking at playing. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, no, it does. It <laughs> does. It, it just, well, you've got to determine how you want to play. And I think, mm. look, what, what, one of the, the, the big errors that I think I fell for early in my journey when it came to career, wealth, and, and, and making money was that I, I would look up the top seven books I should read, and then I read books that are generally great for people. Not specific to my needs, my wants, and my desires. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to become a magician who used keynote speaking as a pathway to be able to help inspire other people and also teach communication skills. But I was reading books from people who, you know, the guy who created Nike, uh, you know, yeah. from from Jeff Bezos, and and I've I've just got to. I think what this book made me realize is you want to make sure you model the right people. Yeah. And, and don't just listen to someone's advice just because they're successful, because that's a huge mentor trap. And then the classic mentor trap that I've spoken about before is that you just look for the richest person you know, and you have them as a mentor because you think that money is the main indicator of success, right? Whereas I, I'm, again, just saying it again, because I think this is just such a powerful lesson for me, and I'm trying to bake it into my mind, is that the biggest indicator for success for me at the moment is people who are able to do what they want, when they want, with who they want, for as long as they want, wherever they want. You know, and, and those are the people who are the most successful in my eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's something cool to aim for. So I'm going to try to look for people like that and then learn from them and see how they built their portfolio of wealth. Because I don't want to pick stocks. I don't want to do all of that stuff and then feel stressed and not be able to sleep at night. I actually want mm-hmm. my investment strategy to be boring as possible so that I can focus on the things I enjoy doing, like teaching communication skills, creating content on social media, doing these podcasts with you, hanging out with you, right? Whereas I, I see some of my friends who are, who are very sophisticated investors, all of their cognitive energy is spent thinking about it day in, day out, and they hold another full-time job on top of their investing. That's not what I want investing to be for me. Yep. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, you've got to you've got to work out what you want, for sure. You know? And I think that's really important. Even when we, you know, as we go through this conversation, for all the listeners out there, like the way that we're speaking about this is very relative to our own individual experiences, right. right? In the times that we, we grew up, in the mm. environments that we grew up in, with the resources that we had available to us, with the upbringings that we had as children, probably with some of the cultural values that help form us, the education systems that we were part of. So there's all these different things. So the way that we're approaching it won't be relevant for a lot of people that are listening, but hopefully just the concepts around maybe how you think about it in alignment with where you're at is 
one of the things to, to take away and what information is it and who is it that you are looking at modeling potentially if this is an area of importance to you um and I then just that's... just make sure once you work that out align your investing strategy with that yeah you know and and it's uh i love this one one quote that i do want to read from the book mm-hmm. and it's it says nothing amazed me more about Danny than his ability to denote what we had just done. This is two authors yeah. writing a book. Yeah, this is Daniel goes, Kahneman. Of thinking Daniel Kahneman, yeah. yeah. And he goes, um, so, so what essentially happened was they had wrote a whole chapter together and then Danny just basically tore that chapter to bits and wrote a whole new chapter and then presented it back to his other co-author. And the other guy's like, how, how, how were you able to just just throw all of the work we've done and redone it, but you've done it better, but, but how could you just throw all of that away? <laughs> and he, he said one sentence that just blew his other co-author away. And he says, I have no sunk costs. Hmm. And th- that is really hard to live like that. And sunk costs, that if is. you're not familiar with it, it's just an accounting term where it's saying that a lot of the times people fall into the trap of sunk costs where it's, well, I've already invested $20 into this project. I yeah. might as well- 10 years of my life. Dollars. 15 yeah. years of my effort and energy. That's right. I've already put 20 I did a years degree for four years. Yeah. I might as well finish it. Right. Yeah. So that's the sunk cost fallacy is what we call it in the world of accounting. And, and, and it's interesting because when you're thinking about investment strategies, you've got to really be careful of sunk costs because I've fallen victim to this before. It's like, oh, well, I've already invested this much. If I invest a little more, maybe yeah. I'll be able to get what I lost out yeah. of it. And it's the yeah, same thing, at the, especially at the casino, bro. I've seen my friends do this at the casino. Well, man, I've already lost X thousands of dollars. Maybe yeah. I just double down and I'll yeah. maybe get lucky and get it back. And then they end up oh, just losing The, the casino loves sunk costs. Oh, and dude. That psychological concept. Like, Yeah. So so that was, that was a really cool little passage because- mm-hmm. It just made me think about the sunk costs that are in existence in my life right now. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of sunk costs do I have? You know, and and it made me think about sunk costs in terms of career paths as well. This podcast, you're like, I'm already 30 episodes in. I better do another. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too. <laughs> no, but you know, you know, the the funny thing is, I, I mean, I don't know if you reflect on why we do this podcast. Mm. I'd love to ask you why you because <laughs> I can tell you why I do it. I do it for a few reasons. One, because being able to read knowing we're going to talk about it forces me to study. Mm. The second, I, 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 and I talked about this before on the podcast, is, is that I want something to be able to share with my kids so that they can see what dad was like when he was in his mid-30s and how he was thinking about money, about relationships, about being present, so they can have an archive. For, it's, it's Again, it's, it's my ultimate insurance policy if I die. It's just to be able to give my kids these, these things. And then the third thing is I really want to inspire people to go on their self-development journey, to continually read. You know, I feel like every time I read a book, I gain a little more wisdom and I'm able to make moves in life that better, that better my life. It's like with this book already, there are so many things in this book that has changed the way, it's changed the way I'm going to live. Yep. You know, it's, 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 it's helping me move away from that materialism, you know, because I told you it's, it's, it's materialism. It's, it's so attractive. It's so, it, it, it's so seductive. Whereas the more books I read like this, it's medicine for me because it's like, nah, man, stop buying new things all the time. Fix the things you have. 
Yep. It's, for sure. Yeah, it's it's it, it helps so much. I mean, that's the three reasons why I do it. What's the three reasons mm. you do it? This podcast. I just got <laughs> just just got a bit of time that I need to kill, bro. Like I'm just sitting here <laughs> bored and can't think of anything oh, better to do. It. Nah. <laughs> nah, I think it's mm. um one of the big things, like outside of the reasons that you already mentioned. I won't repeat any of those, but I think it's the fact that a lot of the time reading and learning, especially reading from a book, it's very much like it's just you by yourself with the book. Mm. And like, especially a lot of the books that we're discussing out here, they do have an application component to them. And I think it's hard when you're the only one reading it to really get into the zone where it's like, how, how am I going to actually apply it? So when we're doing this podcast, that's one of the things that I'm always thinking about. It's like, A, I love seeing your different perspective because generally yeah. when I'm reading a book, I'll just purely look at the actionable steps and the way that I can practically use some of those tools. Whereas I love how you'll look at it from a very different, even like storytelling narrative around what does this mean on a, on a deeper level? Like what are some of the broader concepts that are being used? And it just colors in, I think the understanding there. And then I think also, I think it's cool that for a lot of people that probably won't read a lot of these books is because they're not really in their interest. So they can just hear two mates essentially talking about our real life experiences with what we're getting out of these books and then how we're actually navigating through certain aspects of our life, right? Like we mm. generally just share what what we've taken from them and how they relate to our journey and in the hope that there might be a few little nuggets there for others if if they align with it. And and look, I, I guess uh, I guess as we we kind of wrap this episode up as well, the I'll say a final thing and I'd love to hear something from you as well, Ali, in that just just be super careful who you take investment from when it comes or take advice from when it comes to the investment world. Uh, it's, definitely don't take it from these two guys that you're listening to right now. Yeah. But it's just, then the reason why you've got to be so careful is because everyone's got a different time horizon. Everyone has a different money psychology. And if you just take advice from anyone and everyone, you may be taking the wrong advice. Because my time horizon is probably going to be different from Ali's time horizon. It'll be different from you, the you that's listening right now. So just be very careful with who you take your advice from. And, For and, sure. and the, the, the final thing about this, this, this book is that ultimately the author just says dollar cost average. With all the wisdom that he shared, the final chapter is just set aside a certain amount of money and put it into investments every single month, every single fortnight, every single week, whatever your dollar cost average time period is. And then just stick to it regardless of what the newspapers say. I mean, who bloody reads newspapers anymore? But whatever the news articles say, whatever the YouTube videos say, just dollar cost average. Because when you look at the history of the economy and whatever, it's kind of trending upwards. So if your dollar cost average, looks like it's going to be okay. <laughs> yep. I love that. I think, yeah, just yeah. my sort of finishing thoughts on it and it was just a, a little topic that exists within the book and I love this is that it's the concept of nearly mixing in humility and like managing your sort of – like they use the word ego but really your desires and it's like really when you're overspending, it's usually a mismatch between sort of what your ego wants and your desires want versus what you actually have at your disposal. So finding that healthy balance between – the two. So, and then that would probably just tie to the broader point is that I think your, your point around financial advice, like just from my experiences with so-called financial experts over the years, it is one of the closest things that I've seen to a pseudoscience. You know, like I've very rarely found any experts where they all 
kind of say the same thing or they've even those that are providing advice and expertise have executed some of the outcomes that they're selling. So that disclaimer about being really careful around who you trust with your money or to make investment decisions for you, I think is a really big one. Um, There are some great books out there. Like we we mentioned this one that we've just read. I think the Barefoot Investors has got some really cool basic concepts in there. There's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think is a really yeah. cool one that I remember. Like, so there's probably four or five that have lasted the test of time. Like do a Google on if this is an area that you're interested in on the top sort of money books or investing books and you'll find a couple that will repeatedly kind of come up. And then the other one that we just didn't really touch on is everything that we – like so much of what we see is about investing in things that are outside of our scope of control. Like go invest in stocks, go invest in index funds and do that. I think they're all great strategies. But I think one of the biggest ones when you think about investing is investing into your own self and your own development. Right? Like that's got to be one of – like when you speak to so many of the people that I think we've both spoken to that do have quite abundant – levels of wealth there's a very strong correlation with the quality of information that they've got and the way that they've developed certain skill sets right like yes you can probably get to a really good financial endpoint just by getting income and then investing that smartly that is one pathway to it but personally the one that i really enjoy is where there's a learning opportunity or it can enhance the journey that i'm on and then money is an offshoot of me playing that version of the game really well Right, so that's this one that aligns with me, and a lot of that, the actual investment is usually time and finances in into developing skill and acquiring new forms of information. Right, so that sort of combination, and then see how you can then package that up into a financial outcome. Well, that that almost ties back into what we said before: is that when you take time to invest into you, you become more valuable. You're able to add more value, and as you're able to add more value, you can exchange that value for more money. And, and you probably get some other offshoots that are just, just aren't financial, right? Like for me, yeah, yeah, I think one of the reasons why I don't really love traditional investing is it's like it's a transactional type of relationship. Mm. Unless I'm really learning about that game, say maybe it's a new technology or if it's like cryptocurrency or something where it's got a little bit of interest from a learning component. But most of the time yeah. it's as simple as find a good index fund and invest. And then from there, I don't really have much interest in it. Whereas if it's around learning a new skill set, then developing that and then trying to integrate that into my ecosystem where I can then commercialize it somehow. Um, then I get usually additional levels of enjoyment because there'll be other people that will probably interact with. There'll be skills that will be developed. There might be the financial outcomes from it. It just adds a little bit more to the game. Awesome. Well, Ali, thanks for rounding out this episode with that. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for this episode. This one's a bit of a, it was a bit of a serious one. You know, investing is one of those things where, yeah, it's a little bit different because you have to, again, I I just hope that if you take anything from this, if you find it interesting and and you realize there's a gap uh, for you in terms of a knowledge gap and and you want to learn more about it, I just encourage you to go on your own journey and educate yourself financially because this is one of those games where I think even at the most basic level, we've got to learn it. We've got to learn how to manage our money because we don't get taught at school and we go don't get taught in our jobs. So, you know, this one is, is on us. It's our responsibility, you know, and, and your, your future depends on it. So hopefully it's inspired you to begin that journey. Thanks so much for joining us for this particular episode. We'll see you on the next one.
Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out.